Welcome to The Good Complex. I'm Jeff Jones. It's my privilege to be the host because I get to be part of these conversations and meet some of the coolest people in the world. If you're wondering what The Good Complex is all about, uh, here we highlight the tremendous good that's being done in our world or have conversations that sometimes are very divisive, but if we work hard enough, we can actually listen to each other enough to agree because we all have the common good as our common ground. And so we can push the ball forward together. And today our conversation is is really an incredible story of, of a person who started an organization that's doing tremendous good for uh, a very underserved group of people uh, that we all care about. And, uh, and so it's my privilege to introduce us to Bill Henson. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. And, uh, and I really look forward to hearing about Posture Shift and what you guys do to serve, um, to serve kids, uh, young adults in the LGBT community that have been uh, sort of pushed out or pushed around or yes. whatever. And so we'll get there. Um, but first, let me just get to know you a little bit. So you're a Texan. I'm a Texan. I was actually born in a very small town in Oklahoma. And then we moved to Lafayette, Louisiana for just a short period of time and then on to Houston near NASA. I grew up there from age 12 to 29. And then uh, age 29, I had a job transfer to Boston and lived in Boston for uh, 25 years and then just recently moved back to Houston. So I know you're a Patriots fan. Uh, yeah, pretty big Patriots fan. Uh, no, over the top Patriots <laughs> fan. So I'm an Alabama guy. So you got mm-hmm. you know Mac Jones, our quarterback yes. uh, from last uh, last season, and yes, next generation of greatness. <laughs> you need to thank Alabama every day. He's going to be amazing. I think. Uh, we we just saw a game where his head was fully in the game. He did an amazing job. They came up short, but yep. this guy, he's gonna. He's going to be a uh, real contributor long-term at, with the Patriots. Well, we're glad to have you back in Texas. Uh, since I live in Dallas, you, you're a Houstonite again. And, uh, but I really, you know, I, I really want to hear about your organization and, and what you guys do at Posture Shift. And, and one of the really interesting things to me is origin stories of, of these organizations. And, uh, but even before we get there, tell mm. us what it is. Like, what is Posture sure. Shift? What are you guys about? What do you yeah. What do you care about? So, Posture Shift is an organization we're f- focused on loving LGBT people in the church, and church is in broader faith community. So that includes school, camp, home. Okay. And we want to build a new church history where LGBT people of any age, but you know, particularly young people who are very vulnerable where they can consider that a Christian home or a Christian church is like the safest place of refuge they could ever ask for. When life is both good, happy, and also when life hurts, and even when things happen that are tragic in their life, things like bullying, things like that. Wouldn't that be great if the first call that they want to make is to their youth pastor or to mom and dad, rather than having to reach outside because they're afraid of home and afraid of church? Okay, so... You know, here at The Good Complex, uh, most of our <coughs> listeners are not church people. Um, uh, I'm a church person. I'm a <laughs> pastor, you know, uh, but not everybody involved in The Good Complex uh, on the staff side is a church person, right? So it, it's a broad group of people just all committed to the yes. common good. Um, and yet you've decided to focus on a particular group of people, and that is uh, um, LGBT yes. plus 
uh, youth who come out mostly of religious context or probably any context where they experience rejection. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it doesn't take a religious parent to be maybe like surprised that their kid has come out. And there could be different geographic cultures where uh, sexuality is either more accepted or not. Yeah. So there could be a non uh, a person without really a religious faith that their kid comes out and they could be very abusive. Yeah. Just because no, no kid of mine is going to be that. I, it's like a maybe like the questioning of a father's manhood or right. something. So there can be purely on secular grounds a lot of mistreatment that occurs with kids when they come out within their family. And then also a lot of the bullying that occurs, it's actually occurring in secular schools. So you help both the <clears throat> kids or young adults yeah. as well. I know, you know, we'll talk about how you help them, but you also help the family. Yes. And and try to build a bridge again and, and build a exactly reconnection right. as much as possible. So so how did how did this happen? <clears throat> like how did you because I, I understand you were you know, you worked at, for an energy company in Boston. <laughs> How do you go from doing that to saying, let's start this nonprofit organization to help kids who've yeah. been pushed out of their homes? Sure. I, I, I got transferred to Boston uh, from the deep south. And in that frozen chosen place, <laughs> I actually uh, had a, a coming to Christ experience and felt very uh, interested in mission trips. And mission trips that really had to do with focusing on like relief efforts. So like anywhere where there was poverty or injustice, I just found myself being drawn to those kinds of trips uh, where we could provide direct care, you know, um, direct relief, like make a difference, you know, caring for kids in orphanages in Siberia and China and Haiti and Africa. And so I had about 21 mission trips okay. uh, yeah. very quickly in my life. Uh, and... I, it was, I lived and breathed it. Yeah. And I, I got a call one night. My son, my daughter was about three years old. My son was just born, only a couple weeks old. And I got a call from this campus organization at a university, um, Case Western Reserve University. Yeah. And they said, hey, we're, we're trying to just show God's love to LGBT students here and we'd like to invite you to just come and just like cast vision for this university for how the church could do that. Hmm. And on, on the one hand, I'm just thinking, why am I being contacted about this? But it sounded really exciting. So I said, yeah, they said it's going to be just a quiet conversation, about 30 students. And I thought, oh, that's doable. So I got on a flight from Boston um, and when I arrived to the campus, you know, like I quickly learned that the event had gone uh, campus wide because students were so afraid that it was going to be some kind of messaging of condemnation. And that would explain why um, there are 50 protesters outside the auditorium filled with 750 students. Wow. And so I'm like, I did not ask for this. <laughs> yeah. I don't like culture war. I don't yeah. want people to feel afraid or hurt or anything like that. So I just said, I, I better start getting to know the protesters. Oh my goodness. I heard one tragic story after another. I had, I heard stories of... So wait a minute. So you, 
So you're you're going to this event to yeah. speak. Seven hundred and fifty students there. You've got the fifty protesters outside. Yeah. So at some point you decided how did you talk to the pro did you just go I just I was desperate. I was so afraid. I was like, how could how could they be so hurt and so angry and then think that I'm gonna come and say something really beautiful? So did you go just address did you just go talk to them? Yeah, I said I or- see your sign. Christians for hate, you know, I, I see your sign. Why are you here? And, and what's your concern? Huh. And, you know, like in, in the work today, I know the best thing we could ever do is posture ourselves as a listener and a learner. Yeah. Ask objective, honoring questions, allow people to tell the story of their life. And that day, I don't think I had that skill, but I think just out of desperation, it kind of, you know, it, it, it left me with no other option, but to think, I better try to establish as much trust as possible, and um, so you had so you you just had a listening moment with yeah, these protesters yeah. to say, "Tell me, yeah, what are you trying to say? What do you, yeah?" I heard about kids that grew up reporting that they're being bullied at school, and their parents kind of blaming them. Hmm. I heard a story of a young girl that grew up with two moms, and she was told that by other adults in her life that oh, your moms are not really your moms because that kind of relationship is not okay. And this little girl, she's 19 years old, sweet as could be, you know, you could just tell, she said, I love my mothers and I'm here because I'm defending my family. Sure. And very deeply felt. Yeah. Another, one other example, a mom was holding a hand, the hands of this, of her special needs son, Hmm. This little boy was so cute, and he just kept staring at me and rocking back and forth, and I was looking at him in the eye. I said, ma'am, why are you here? She said, I'm here because those religious people keep trying to get me to not be able to get health care through my partner's employer to take care of our son. Wow. And I looked in that boy's eyes, and I just knew, <laughs> if anyone claims to be a person of faith, we should never be stopping the access to healthcare for a mom to get help for her son. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor of a church and, uh, for about a year, I met with a group of LGBT people in our church, uh, just once a month for dinner. And there were about 12, 15 people that regularly met with me and, and, and they were all over the map. So some were not Christians, some were, some, were committed to a traditional sexual ethic. Some were not yep. as Christians and had good reasons for you know all of that. That wasn't the point. <laughs> it was just for opportunity for me. It was a gift to me for them to sh- invest or, or take the risk to let me be in their story and understand what it's like to be them. And But every one time I asked, how many of you in some religious context have been told you're going to hell because you're gay or transgender? Mm-hmm. Um, can you guess the percentage that I said yes? I would suspect that nearly every hand hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're told that. Yeah, you know. And uh, you think, how do you get from Jesus to that? I don't know, but it, it's amazing how yeah. how that seems to happen. Now we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. hey, what you know, in a little bit, the elephant in the room. Yes. Say if you have a sexual mm-hmm. ethic that is the traditional ethic, <clears throat> Christian, like how can you say you love gay people? So we'll we'll sure. get to that. Yeah, That'll, we'll just keep that tension there, but. So you go from that conversation in the, I guess, right outside the venue. Yeah. And, and then the then venue you, has to happen. <laughs> so you go speak and you're probably done in. And I'm done in because, like, 
it was just a theoretical idea. It was just an invitation, come and we'll have almost like a round table. And now I'm on a stage and yeah. there's 750 people and they all have a story like those individuals that I met. And I'm thinking, how many students out there are possibly suicidal? Mm-hmm. You know, how many are dealing with family rejection? How many got asked by their church to leave? You know, and here I am sharing a, a, a message of you know, God's love. The good thing is this was not an event where the messaging was designed to condemn anyone. Yeah. It was essentially (laughs) an invitation, you know, God loves you. He cares deeply about you. And so do we, at the end of that messaging, um, uh, I felt a deep peace by the end of it. And what had been a very rowdy atmosphere when it all closed up, there's dead silence in the Mm. auditorium. A lot of fear, a lot of anger had been diffused. A lot of people not seeing what they expected to saw or to see. They were actually, um, they were actually a little bit maybe frustrated by that. Um, And some people walked out in silence. Um, But a lot of the protesters that we, we met, they actually came up. I got so many hugs people looking at me in the eye and saying, I trust you and thank you for not coming here and condemning us. And this was not what we thought. And, um, this, if the church or faith looked more something like this, I might have something to do with God. Yeah. The way I felt that is I've had many LGBT people in my life and uh, when I had my own coming to Christ, it's almost like a certain door shut. Like there's like an expectation. Oh, now he's going to, you know, take these beliefs so deeply that he's going to maybe judge us or cut us off. And so we'll preemptively cut him out of our life. So yeah. I'd seen a lot of doors get cut off, not because I did something, but just because I had a, a deep faith experience. And, and so that night represented, I saw a crack in the door open Mm -hmm. and I thought, you know what? God's love can still touch people's hearts. Yeah. And I was very amazed, but it was 30 days later that I, I could not stop thinking about this event. And I was, you know, I told you I had gone on a lot of mission trips. And so one night I, uh, was holding Andrew and he's only about six weeks old or so, and, and just loving on him. And then I tuck my little kids in and then I go to the computer at about 1030 at night, start uh, journaling, I thought. And all of a sudden I start writing about the event and all of a sudden ideas that I'll just be honest, I don't know that I could really come up with them, hmm. start flowing out. And I stopped writing at 4.30 a.m. And out before me was a vision statement that became posture shift. You know what I did the next day? Um, I sent that 50-page vision statement to about five pastors and and a missiologist. And yeah, yeah, they were really loving and kind, but they just said, oh, please (laughs) 
send us this when you get it down to a statement or two. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, 50-page vision statement's quite a vision statement, yeah. yeah. But so how did you so you so you just couldn't get it out of your system? Uh, it was So you had a you had a safe job, a good job, you were doing <laughs> your thing and all of a sudden this disruption in your life yeah. where you see wow, there's all these hurting people yeah. and I'm committed to an ethic above all that's about love. Yeah. And they're not feeling that from Christianity, which yes. is your faith commitment. Um, and you realize, wow, something's got to happen here because there's yeah. this chasm here that shouldn't be there. So how did you get, I know you sent it to some pastors, but mm-hmm. when did you decide, I'm going to quit my job and start <laughs> an organization? It took a year for me to get 50 pages down to about, honestly, about two paragraphs. And I started sharing it. Every one that read it, I had, I had theologians look at it. I had pastors look at it. I had uh, missiologists look at it. Um, there's a there's a uh, mission organization that has an education program called Perspectives in World Missions, yeah, yeah. and I kind of sent it to that organization mm. almost sheepishly, right? You know, and they were like, every everyone came back, Bill. We can think of no greater need than to bring. Uh, a mission model that's very common when Christians try to share God's love with people overseas to bring that kind of model and that commitment to care for people domestically right here at home. And of course, there is a great divide. You know, missionaries sharing God's love around the world, they're free to do a lot to like, you know, care for people where they are. Yeah. As they are. They think that way. But you try to right. do that domestically and suddenly it's a grave threat, you know. Yeah. You're you're participating in others' sins. It's compromise, you know, it's heresy. And, you know, like they warned me, they said, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of accusations, but we encourage you stay strong and stay courageous because God has given you a calling and this is a much needed calling. Since when should Christians be known for hate? Yeah. Shouldn't we be known for caring deeply for people? Right. Yeah. So we would all agree that LGBT plus community are people to be loved, not people to be judged. Yes. Um, and that's our kind of our jam here at The Good Complex, whether Christianity is your thing or yes. something else. But um, that said, uh, you know, in Christianity, there are, there are strains of Christianity that um, believe that you know, anything goes kind of when it comes, hey, just figure out your sure. own sexuality and do your thing. And then there's a strain of Christianity that says, well, you know, there is a an ethic that, that Jesus affirms about sex being in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And that's right. not about orientation. That's about sexual activity. But, yep. um, but talk about that a little bit, because I think that's elephant in the room in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're talking about loving LGBT people. And the transgender thing a little bit different, but you're talking about LGD, LGBT people, and yes. yet you have this ethic that, you know, you have, a, a, from what I understand, a traditional yes, ethic when it comes correct. to sexuality and marriage. So yeah. let's just talk about how can you claim yeah. to love gay people and then, yeah. you know, have that ethic. So first of all, I, it's indisputable that LGBT people have been hurt very deeply by people of faith. And as just one example, um, after the Pulse shooting, 49 people murdered, 53 others injured. Um, most churches in Orlando wrapped their lives around 
the surviving families of mm. victims and around survivors and la- paid for burials, flew family from Latin America, counseled family because their family was often learning not just that their loved one died, but that that meant their loved one was gay and they had never known. And the church just did some amazingly beautiful things. Yeah. But there was one voice on Christian radio and internet radio that effectively said, we just wish that club would have been bigger so that, you know, God could have done away with more of those uh, homosexuals. And, you know, like most Christians don't even know that. Yeah. I don't know an LGBT person around the world that doesn't, didn't hear that voice. So, you know, like there's even an 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 expression of faith that's even more extreme, you know, than just holding to a traditional view. Mm-hmm. You know, there can be people that weaponize that yeah. belief. So from my perspective, the question is this level playing field. Does someone with a traditional view have a better standing with God than someone who doesn't? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think so. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Um, God, uh, Jesus was very clear, you know, there's no room for any kind of judgment. And if you, if you establish a measure that, you know, like, uh, you, this is the base upon which God will have nothing to do with you. Oh, be careful because <laughs> watch out what you're doing in your own life. That measure may come back to be applied toward you. And, uh, so I just, I just think that, um, the rubber meets the road, the love and the genuineness of it will be proven one action, one attitude, one word, one commitment to care, to protect, to conclude, to include at a time. And so the fact that LGBT people might say, how could I ever trust, you know, a family member or a pastor or a church or a ministry with a traditional view? I'd say, yeah, you have every right to have that kind of suspicion. Uh, I would be suspect too. Oh, and I hope you'll measure love based on the love that is actually happening rather than the belief gap. In other words, a lot of people would like to just simplify it, say there's a belief gap and there's side A, side B. And if you're on the traditional side, you are automatically hateful and I could never feel safe around you. Well, I mean, that's been proven untrue over and over again yeah. through tangible acts of love, care, inclusion, protection. Yeah. So I would say the onus is not on LGBT people to just say, trust, trust us. The onus is on people of faith that hold that belief to prove that they're not out to condemn, to judge, to weaponize their belief against, to battle against the civil rights of uh, to look away when harm is being done to LGBT people. Uh, if we have a high commitment to include, to accept in the church, to accept in our families, to protect when harm occurs, then we will earn a trust and we can have a mutual relationship with people where they know we genuinely love them. Yeah. And I know your commitment is we just love you no matter what. Yeah. But you don't have to agree with anything. Yep. You don't have That's to commit right. to anything. We just love you. And uh, so let's talk about a little bit the people that you serve, um, Mm -hmm. because I know you focus on um, young adults, teenagers, college students who have been uh, 
disavowed or now are disconnected from their families yes. uh, when they've tried to come out and that didn't go so well. Um, I'm, I'm sure families well-meaning, thinking they've got to stand for the truth or something like that, yep. and so they feel like that they mean they need to kick their kids out or not support them anymore. And I know that that's a—I mean, all of a sudden, this kid who has been in this family now is just out on their own. Um, talk a little bit about what it's like to be them, you know, because you—these yeah. are people. This, this is not theory to you. You these yeah. are the these are the young adults that you talk to, that you love, yeah. that you relate to. Every day, yep, and uh, and help in very tangible ways. Uh, so, talk a little bit about what it's like to be them, to grow up sure. in this culture as an LGBT youth, to to then face that in your family and feel that yeah. rejection. Just yeah, unrelated to faith, uh, unrelated to what a young person will ultimately believe about what to do with their sexuality or their gender. Every LGBT person I've ever met, uh, churched, unchurched, um, per- people of faith or not, they all report uniformly feeling different at a very early age. For people in the gender identity spectrum, that can actually occur really young, age two, three, four. For kids on sexual orientation. Yeah, where they realize, I know my body is this, but yeah. I'm not. I mean, I'm a boy. Yeah, that's right. And I've always thought about even if... uh, biology would say something different. That's exactly right. And and yet that, like, developmentally, how could a three- or a four-year-old really give voice to that? Yeah. It's impossible. Right. It might be a a girl that's saying, I'm going to grow up to be a boy, a daddy, or something. But a parent could just think, oh, that's play language or something. Yeah. But in that child, they're literally already trying to figure out, like, I know who I am, but my, but people keep engaging me as if I'm not that. Developmentally, they don't know how to explain all that. Yeah. But there's already a, a certain level of conflict or anxiety that's brewing even as early as uh, two to three to four years of age. Um, on sexual orientation spectrum, uh, it'd be more like first point of socialization, first grade or so. And it's very interesting. Um, kids will, so they have this feeling of differentness. And it's inside. Developmentally, they're not able to explain it. It just mm-hmm. may be a feeling of, I don't feel comfortable with those kids. Uh, and so they withdraw, or possibly the other kids spot something that's different, and then they proactively exclude. Possibly passively exclude or purposely exclude. But the problem is, without that socialization connection, then the difference gets amplified. Mm. And the more that it's amplified, the more that kids start to label it, name call, and then potentially tease and possibly bully. So you've got young kids first grade that are feeling different inside and now starting to be treated differently, average age about second grade. And that could go on hour by hour throughout their day day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year of a very young life. One 12-year-old kid we were caring for with his parents, he, he said this way. He said, Bill, the, the crippling anxiety hit me every morning the moment I put the backpack on my shoulder and I felt the backpack hit my back. I knew that meant I was entering the war zone. Hmm. And he said, I would always time it to where I arrive at the bus at the last second 
so I could get in the front door that no kid wants to go in so I can sit right behind the bus driver because no kid wants to sit there so that I could then get off the bus first and then run to my locker, change my books and get to class. Imagine living your everyday hour to hour life trying to outrun the teasing, the name calling, the bullying. Mm And that's in public schools with anti-gay bullying prevention programs in place. There are kids that are still experiencing that kind of mistreatment and that kind of fear. Uh, what is This is trauma. Yeah. <laughs> and it's trauma that's long-term. Uh, so it has a huge impact on actually shaping brain chemistry. Hmm. So PTSD, uh, trauma, uh, or post-traumatic stress is actually mapped into the brain. So you get to be 12 or 13 and then you end up, oh, I actually am gay, you know, or I think I might be gay. And now what do kids feel? They feel, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of mom and dad. I'm afraid of my youth group. I'm afraid of my pastor. I'm afraid of that camp that our family has always gone to. I'm afraid of school. And all of a sudden the places that should be the most loving, the most caring, the most safe, it's all gone. And this is, as we can imagine, it has a tragic impact on the development, not just what we would hope for, of a really beautiful faith identity of people knowing how deeply they're loved by God, but it actually damages the development of personal identity, Mm. value, and worth. So I assume, I mean, trying to put myself in that situation, they'd either have to try to live in, try to hide yep. their orientation or gender, you know, gender expression. Um, or, I mean, I don't know, what are the options? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like... We'll meet 11-year-old kids who are so exhausted that they've already reached the... Now, don't think I'm calling them defiant, but my point is that point of exhaustion where they actually have a will to think that they're value valuable enough to stand up for themselves. So it can come yeah. out as defiance because it, there's a lot of anger yeah. uh, on top of the hurt. So we'll meet kids that are, I'll say, brave enough, courageous enough, uh, mentally healthy enough to where they're actually saying, no, this is who I am I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, and I'm not worthless, I'm valuable. And then on the other end of that spectrum, we'll meet kids that are beaten down and they're highly isolated, filled with uh, not even fear anymore because they're numb and depression has risen and they may be cutting or even possibly have attempted suicide. Yeah, I understand that for kids in general, suicide rate is way different for an LGBT kid than not. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so LGBT youth... If they're even in a loving family, they're two to four times more likely to attempt suicide than Mm -hmm. their heterosexual peers. For trans kids, it can be eight to 16 times higher. If there's high levels of rejection in that family or and, and high levels of bullying or either one of those factors, then that can be up to eight times more likely for LGB kids. And it could be up to 32 times higher Mm -hmm. for trans kids. So, you know, like, it's like kids can take only so much, you know. Uh, we met one family where the parents had been trying to redirect their two-year-old 
who became a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a five-year-old and now a six-year-old, they had kept trying to redirect their son to stop saying that he's a girl. And, um, and the more that they tried, the more that he actually was trying to communicate with them that he really is a girl. And I mean, you, you can understand the parents' perspective, you know, yeah, yeah. like, but we have a boy and he's just so young. He's always been my boy. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I have compassion for parents. This is not about shaming and blaming parents, but it's just saying that they tried so hard that they had a six-year-old who was suicidal. Wow. And it's developmentally, it's very difficult for a six-year-old to think in concepts of suicide. Yeah. But with enough trauma, it can happen. Wow. So... So with these kids, we're, I want to get to parents here in just a little bit, you know, just how can parents do better, um, you know, as they're just trying to love their kids. And then this is difficult sometimes for them to know what to do. But on the kid on the kid side, and young adult side. So you guys provide very practical support for kids mm-hmm. who feel like they have no place to go or have been pushed out or maybe are afraid if they come out, they're going to lose everything, lose the love of their parents, lose their support. Um, So I assume a lot of coming out parties don't feel like a party. (laughs) They don't go so well. Right. And, and, uh, and then it's trauma even more, you know, now I've lost my family. Now I've lost the love. So um, talk to us a little bit about how you come alongside young adults, maybe college students or, Uh, teenagers who, when they finally are brave enough to come out to their family, feel rejection. Uh, how do you how do you find these young adults? Yes. What do you do for them when you do find them? Yeah, they 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 find us, and they may be referred to us from someone possibly that they told, uh, maybe an adult in their life that they trust, or possibly a friend who has an older brother who's gay and they knew about posture shift. Um, or possibly they just got online and searched mm-hmm. and they found us. So they'll write to us. They'll send us a private Facebook message or on Instagram. And we'll hear some really scary stories and some stories with a lot of fear. Uh, like um, some kids will be saying, yeah, hey, uh, like Jeremy, I- I- I'm 15 and and I grew up in a Christian family and I- I've known I'm gay since I'm 12 but I've just been unable to tell my mom and dad. I, I'm, I've heard the language in my family about gay people, and it's really scary. I'm afraid that I won't be allowed to get a driver's license, or I'm afraid that I might get kicked out. And another kid, Mason, 12 years old, wrote us and uh, wrote about being in a private school and a parent finding out about Mason's gender identity and then telling the entire school mm. and Mason's parents went silent. A teacher told Mason he was going to hell mm. and then all these other parents almost like ganged up on their entire family trying to push them out of the school. And unfortunately Mason's parents didn't turn toward Mason. Mason's parents turned against Mason and literally three months later we got a t- final text and Mason was just saying, my phone's being taken away from me. I'm being kicked out of the house. Um, I'll contact you again if I get to a safe place. Hmm. And you know and what? Does Mason? 12 years old. 12 years old. You know what? The hottest priced commodity in the sex trafficking network, 
a mm. trans preteen kid. Mm. That kid could be on the street for 15 minutes and already get kicked, picked up in a sex trafficking network. We had had enough interaction with Mason that we knew uh, his aunt in a nearby state. We called his aunt and we just said, you, I don't know how you're going to be in touch with Mason because his cell phone's taken away from him, but you got to get here and pick him up and take him back and get him off the street or we may never see him alive again. Mm. And by God's grace, his aunt was able to immediately drive and she found him and she took him home to live with her. And he, and, and she said, Mason, you, you are God's child and he loves you. And you know what? You're, you're my child Hmm. and this is your home and you will always be safe here. Hmm. And then, then another kid, 19 years old contacted us and literally was living in a swamp with a phone that's about to run out of battery because of being disowned by his family. Another 19 year old trans kid in California got disowned by his family. And it meant that at the end of the semester has no money. It's going to mm-hmm. end up on the streets or couch surfing. Uh, a lot of homeless LGBT youth, um, they make up 20 to 40% of homeless youth in America. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, they think they're not homeless because they're couch surfing, but the couches ultimately run out. Yeah. And then they end up being on the streets. So we actually partnered with that university to provide a scholarship to keep that kid in, in school so that you know, it prevented homelessness. Okay. So you'll come alongside a kid that's yeah. thrust out, homeless, yeah. or about to be, and provide housing, yes. provide food, provide tuition. And this is not happenstance. We yeah. have a we have an account. It's called our Justice Initiatives account. And it's funded all the time with about $10,000 in there. And importantly, like, you know, would someone try to take advantage of us? Yeah, there's a lot of spammers out there sure you know so we don't make that all public on the website per se but just saying that we we make payments to organizations Mm -hmm. not to individuals yeah so in other words yeah we'll help you with a scholarship but we need to hear from your guidance counselor at your university and find out how we can partner with them we've helped other young people uh, escape persecuting countries where homosexuality they could be arrested for their identity, even if they're not involved in any kind of sexual activity. They could just, by the way they move, the way they walk, the way they talk, they could be arrested, they could be beaten up, they could be imprisoned. And we've partnered with a secular organization like uh, Rainbow Railroad uh, and provided financial assistance to help um, young people get help in other nations as well. So you provide a safe place for these LGBT kids until their home, hopefully, sometimes that won't happen, but hope, you'll, hopefully can become a safe yes. place. And I know you try to work both ends. You, yep. try to, you try to help that reconciliation happen. Or So let's talk about the home side a little yeah. bit, the parent side. Um, because I know you, you know, your ultimate goal, right, would be to help all that work out much differently where there's been yes. a break to where there can be reconciliation and love expressed for this uh, child or teenager or young adult. So uh, talk to us a little bit about the parent side, because I'm sure uh, for for all parents, I mean, an LGBT life is not easy mm. for anybody. I don't, you know, people talk about, you know, people choosing it or something. And 
my experience is, I mean, that's such a hard life. Nobody would choose to be transgender like a trend. Um, that's a really difficult yeah. life. Um, and yet for parents who, you know, who just don't know how to deal with that or, you know, they think they're doing the right thing by, yeah. they probably think they're being loving by throwing their kids out somehow, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, like they've got to stand for truth. They've got to let, yeah. you know, them and, or whatever it is. So talk to us a little bit about the parent struggle and uh, even I'm sure some people listening are parents who have experienced this, who they they have a child that has tried to come out to them as transgender or uh, as gay. And how do you handle that? What do you, what should, what, what should you do? Yeah. Um, how, how should you handle that conversation? Yeah. And so I've met a few parents who are actually really mean. Mm-hmm. At the 96th percentile, I would say that I can see, I can meet parents that have done really horrible rejecting things. And immediately we can identify that they're actually a loving parent who is in stages of grief over the unexpected disclosure that now sexuality is not just a theoretical matter. It's literally what is being claimed by their child. Hmm. And hit by that, suddenly, uh, by the way, when a kid comes out, you know, oftentimes they're at the end of having run a marathon. Yeah. And they like cross it's not the, the first finish thing they do. line. Yeah. yeah. And they're exhausted. And oh. it's maybe the last resort, you know, not necessarily the last resort that they're about to take their life. That happens too. But it could be the last resort as in, I, I tried to hide this forever. I, I tried to pray it away. I tried to, even though I knew it wouldn't go away, I tried to just say, let me just keep this over here. And now life is making that impossible to do. And I finally, I have to tell mom and dad. So stop right there for a minute. So, so you said the average kid, let's say gender, starts realizing something's different, two, three, four, five years old, something. Uh not too far from that on the on the sexual yeah. orientation side of things. So what's the typical gap between I feel that differentness yeah. to when I'm going to talk to mom and dad about it? Okay. Average age, 19 to 23 years of age. So they've lived that whole time. Yes. And All that time, possibly trying to get it to go away or at least hiding out of the fear of being rejected. Can you imagine like the impact on your mental health of having lived your entire mem- memorable childhood anticipating the risk of condemnation, threat, or harm from your own family. Yeah. It's incalculable mm-hmm. the damage that that can do. And so um, a lot of people see a lot of youth coming out, social media, and they just assume, oh, it's an all-gay world. It's safe to be gay and trans Oh, it's hip to be uh, genderqueer or non-binary. Everything's okay. Oh, this is a, an empowered, uh, they say they're a minority group, but they're actually highly empowered and all this stuff. And it betrays the actual statistics. Kids are hiding for a long time. A lot of young people we meet, they actually, I met a, a young guy last night. I said he is uh, 20 um uh, four years old. I said, Oh, well, when did you come out? He said, uh, 23. Okay. I said, okay, yeah. well, what made you finally get to a point where you thought you could come out? And he said, well, 
I got a college degree, so I knew that I my parents couldn't yank college funding from mm-hmm. me, or I knew that if I got rejected, I'd be able to get a job and provide for myself. Mm-hmm. Now, that's on the sexual orientation spectrum. Um, trans people may actually come out in regard to sexuality because it's safer to say. Okay. And they may come out at age 14 or 18 or 22 and then suddenly age 26 28 32 they're coming out on the gender side so for those with uh, a gender identity that they're just kind of feeling inside very deeply but they're just sitting on it sitting Mm -hmm. on trying not to transition they they literally might be going into their late 20s or 30s before they're possibly even fully understanding that uh or sitting on it and not having the courage to tell their their families about it. So, so that gets us back because I interrupted yeah, you. So, so so yeah, so that's so that when the kid comes out as yeah. gay or transgender or young adult, they're like you said, this is this is a finish line for them. Yeah. This is a huge step that they've been dreading or trying to figure yeah. out how to do for their whole life for years. So take let me yeah. let you go back so, to that. So crossing the finish line, falling across the finish line, exhaustion. And now imagine the disconnect. Parents are now catapulted to the beginning of a race they never expected to run. The child has mm-hmm. all the skill yeah. set in the world to understand who they are. Yeah. And the parent has little to no skill set. So it's the ultimate mismatch for yeah. horrible things to be said for threats to be made, for denial, you know, stages of grief. Yeah. You know, parents, well, if this was true, you would have told us when you're 13, not 22, you know, or a trans kid. Oh, we're not going to be part of this delusion. So, you know, like what happens in trauma, it, it, it's, there can be impulsive emotional responses. And so I never shame and blame parents because I'm like, Really what it's about is catching them in the stages of gr- grief, mm. providing them with support to allow them to process their grief with us or a pastor or a counselor so that then they don't go and inflict their grief on their child. Wow. Because inflicting yeah. their grief on their child could be the difference between a living kid or a dead kid. Wow. Yeah, I talked to a mom uh, last night who uh, who has a, a, uh, a boy um, he was a young adult, but forever was her little girl. And um, now she knew, she was aware enough to understand the grief quotient. And uh, and he was gracious enough to understand that too. And so, yeah. I, you know, they, I think he was 16, so he came out earlier than most um, and had already done the orientation thing way, you know, even before that, but the gender conversation and and it was interesting the way she worded it because she said what I what I asked him is would you allow me a little bit of time to grieve the loss of my little girl even as I'm introducing myself to my wonderful boy and it's just a beautiful beautiful thing and and he understood that and said I I I understand that I you know I've had time to process this you haven't I get it you know but that 
that kind of understanding, I'm sure, is pretty rare. Imagine, uh, you know, the one thing about hurt people, they can hurt people, but they also could be highly mature. So we actually encounter a lot of young people that are uh, even preteens that are saying, I know that I have to be sensitive about what this mm -hmm. is going to do to my parents. I'm like, how many teenagers say that so thoughtfully? <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't the yeah. rest of heterosexual <laughs> teenagers just say, yeah. here I am and it's my way. And, yeah. you know, like, and as they get older, it's going to be more of my way. And uh, I'm, you know, like, just get used to it, mom and dad. And here are these potentially highly bullied, highly traumatized kids. And it's actually made them sensitive to be a caretaker of others. Now, there's something beautiful about that, but there's also something really sad, hmm. like, I have to not only protect myself at 13, yeah. but now I have to be the caretaker of how everyone else in my life responds to me. Hmm. In other words, I'm responsible for waiting for them to be able to yeah. love. I I understand both sides, but I'm just saying that's a lot of w extra weight to be on a young kid. So when a mom responds so beautifully as the example that you gave, it... it it provides a path forward. Mm -hmm. Like the mom and the son can imagine, oh, we're going to be a family mm -hmm. and we're going to love each other and we're going to walk with each other. Uh, the way we uh, talk to parents is uh, we just say, hey, look, you know, like you think your child is different? Oh, wait, you think your situation as a parent is different? You don't think the parents of heterosexual kids don't get told things that mm. they were not expecting and that, <laughs> right. you know, they want to try to control and stop and change. You know, your yeah. kid is a teen like every other parent's kid is a teen. And we're all finding out things about our kids. Now, I understand I'm not trying to dismiss the weight you feel right now, but level playing field, your kid is not so different than other teenagers. Yeah. And your parent emotions that you're feeling right now you're not as alone as you think. Mm -hmm. You might feel alone because you're the only parent you know who has a trans kid. And we want to be here for you for that. Um, but it's, but you're not alone in the ultimate feeling that you're having. So if we can level the playing field and make it more accessible, that their kid is just their kid. Mm -hmm. And then we'll say, you know, who gave you your child? You know, and we work with a lot of Christian families. And they're like, God gave me my child. Okay then he, he gave you a child with his image stamped inside them and he gave them life and you, he called you as a parent to nurse them and love them and walk with them. And, and yeah, even when they are things you did not expect or do things that you did not expect, does that mean we suspend our love? No. And you know what? Uh, when we have, uh, I hate, I don't like putting it this way, but when we have given permission of parents to actually love their child, what we're often finding at the root is that it wasn't that they were unwilling to love. It's that they now carried all the expectations of how everyone else is going to respond in their life. Hmm. Suddenly they're carrying the weight that their child has been carrying. Right. So they actually have more in common with their child than not except that their child is acclimated to all of that stress and trauma. And now it's all being 
you know, felt by the parent in an instant. So a lot of parents in particular environments feel like if I don't take a solid stand or something against this in my child, then they're going to judge me. Uh, I'm going to be called a heretic. Everyone's going to be against our family, asking our family to leave the church. Uh, we work extensively across all denominations and, non -de and non-denominations. But in one denomination, they had a university that actually did a study on their own denomination and found that 9% of their families were disowning their kids when they came out. Wow. Do you know what those executives and board members of that denomination did? They, well, that became a viral headline in okay. the news media. Right, right. A really, really horrible, horrible yeah. statistic. It looks bad for the Christian faith. And the executives of that denomination, we were already training them. Mm -hmm. with Posture Shift, and we had released a resource for families called Guiding Families to help parents in that moment when kids come out. And that denomination said, oh my gosh, we not only found out 9% of families are disowning their kids, we found out why. They actually think their pastors and we as their denominational leaders are expecting them on biblical terms to do that because mm. that's what it takes to be godly. Mm. We've got to fix it. They signed a distribution agreement for to print 20,000 copies of Guiding Families, freely distribute it to their pastors and to tell their pastors to read it and then go to the pulpits and tell their families, if your kids are LGBT, they're not of them, they're us. Because in a family and in this family mm -hmm. of God, there's no us in them. There's mm -hmm. only us. Your kids are part of our church family. And we will not reject them. And you as mom and dad are never called to reject your kids. It is ungodly to disown your LGBT kid. Literally, I mean, that's leadership. That's like yeah. taking it so seriously. Oh my gosh. They were expecting, like, you're so loving, Jeff. Yet there could be a family that potentially just because of their own religious hangups, they just imagine, oh, you know, like my senior pastor might be thinking that I'm supposed to yeah. kick my kid out or have nothing to do with them once they come out. So like I even say to super loving pastors, don't assume that when a kid comes out as LGBT, that suddenly the parents keep you in the same category of how loving they know you to be. They suddenly may imagine some really ugly ideas of what you're expecting them to do yeah. in order to be godly. Yeah, that's that's important for me to hear. Mm. So part of your vision is to see, because of your faith commitment, and I know you work with anybody, whatever their faith commitment is, family or um, teenager, kid, but because of your faith commitment, I know you have a vision that that Christian families and mm. churches would be the safest place yeah. in the world for an LGBT plus young person. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? What would that look like? It, it would mean there's no mistreatment allowed in the family. There's no targeted family Bible lessons trying in front of all the other kids trying to send a signal to our LGBT son or daughter uh, or child that, you know, like, don't you get it? <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, there'd be no family rejection. Um, the family 
would just be a family to each other and have a high commitment, especially from mom and dad casting vision. We're going to be a family and we're going to love each other and be together no matter what. So that it sets the vision that as our kids become adults and they live their adult life and they, and like all of our kids might live a single life or they might, you know, have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they might get married and like to cast a vision that, you know, Hey, whenever you get married one day, um, you know, whoever your spouse is, they become part of our family. And on the important days in your life, mom and dad will be there because why? Cause we're a family and we're committed to be there for each other, no matter what. So like, what could, what is an example of a father that couldn't just always say yes, there might mm-hmm. be a father that's, a a pastor of a church with a tr- traditional belief and uh, his son or daughter might say, could you officiate my marriage? And the father might have to say, I can't do that. I can do anything short of that, but I can't do that. A mom and dad will be there on your day. I could say a prayer. Oh, wow. We'll help pay for the wedding. You know, like in other words, you can be there in all kinds of practical ways, mm-hmm. but I don't want to sugarcoat it as if there's just never a, a rejection. You know, there could yeah. be a no that's felt very deeply like, uh, oh, my dad won't officiate our marriage. You know, well, that could be really hurtful, you know. Right. But that's an, a boundary that a pastor could could not go to if the pastor yeah. has a traditional belief. And that's really respecting somebody's just like we want to respect somebody's um, orientation or gender and all the things they're processing. It's also loving to to respect someone's religious beliefs yeah. Yeah. and and deeply held beliefs and 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 my experience has been with uh friends here in the LGBT community and in my community um is that they've been really gracious to me even though they have a different belief than I, they understand hey we don't want you to change yeah. who you are and what you believe in fact we think what you believe is it, a beautiful thing mm-hmm. like we don't we don't want you to become somebody and uh, and I I've I know other people maybe having have experience have a different experience as a pastor. I just don't. I I found yeah. my experience has been, and probably because they've been on the other side of so much rejection and so much condemnation that I I've not re- I've not experienced yes. that from them. Yeah, um, I've experienced uh, a just a lot of graciousness and understanding of hey we yeah. it's cool. I mean yeah. we know you love us. We know you have a commitment that you believe is best for human flourishing. Or you wouldn't you wouldn't have it, and we respect that. We, we may or may not agree with that, but we respect it. Yeah. Um, and I that's what I've received coming back. Yeah. Um, but and and I hope people feel that same respect from me yes, going the other direction. Absolutely. One pastor uh, on the East Coast, um, out of a Southern Baptist Convention background, a church plant, a large established church. And um, the pastor just said one Sunday, hey, uh, I just want to invite anyone LGBT in our church, um, regardless of your beliefs, um, if you're married or single, if you have a family, I just want to invite you to uh, dessert on Tuesday night. And it's just going to be with me and a few pastors. Uh, If you're not LGBT, don't come. This is not a spectator event. But I just want to get to know you. Uh, I know that you Mm -hmm. all know our church has a traditional belief. And yet we've tried to create an atmosphere of inclusion and belonging. And I just want to hear what that experience is like for you. 
And that night, <laughs> 82 people came. Mm. And the one, you know, you asked earlier, like, how could people hold to a traditional view and then LGBT people would really believe that that's loving? Or why would they want anything to do with that? So this pastor, he kind of asked that question. He, mm-hmm. he wanted to, he was so afraid to ask it because it might sound like, why are you here? So yeah, he said, right. now, I want you to know, I want you here. Mm-hmm. I am overjoyed that you're here. I'm asking only because of our traditional belief. It doesn't surface all the time, but throughout the year, you're going to hear it a number of times. And then just the question is, what's that like for you? Why are you here if that could have such a high implication for you or your marriage or your family. And one by one, they gave stories of, Pastor, you need to understand there's there's a, a good number of affirming churches in the area, and we tried them all. And we go there, and there's just nothing deep and rich. That we go there, and the Sunday message might just be why we're all okay. And we want to worship God. We don't want to just be comforted, told, oh, we're okay. Oh, yeah, that, those stupid people that judge us, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. No, we want to worship God. And here, we're here because you teach the scripture deeply and because we're able to worship God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. So, you know, like, there's a caricature out there that LGBT people would never have anything to do with a church that has a traditional belief. And you know what? That's not what we're seeing. We're seeing many... Uh, uh, LGBT folks who have a traditional belief, but also those with an affirming belief, possibly even a gay married couple who are finding a home in a traditionally believing church. So as an organization, I know you exist to do a couple of different things. So you, you want to help families and you want to help faith communities. And so in the faith community thing, that's posture shift, which yes. is, I see it's, it's really helping churches adjust their posture. Yes. Um, so talk about that just a moment. Sure. Uh, Posture Shift is a training program designed for church ministry teams. It could be a Christian school camp, and it helps them to have a more inclusive posture. And then it gives them the language skills to engage LGBT young people, young pe- people of all ages in a more respectful way. So there's a lot of things we might say that are loving in our heart. But we actually use words or phrases that are actually extremely offensive to LGBT folks. So we train uh, church teams to make sure that their engagement skills match the heart posture that they're intending to live out. Our most comprehensive training, two-day course, and then we offer subsets of that. Um, But our two-day course, literally teams will ministry teams will leave with an actual implementation plan. They will literally leave the two days and they'll start going and living it out. Yeah. In their own voice, not in the name of posture shift, just in their own voice. And then, um, of course, on the home front, guiding families is our best practice care plan that helps make homes safer. And so that, and and I've seen that, uh, we actually lead some guiding family groups. I didn't even know that. I did not know that either. Yeah, I just found that out. But um, as a church, we do. Uh, but I found it incredibly helpful. I, I looked at it for the first time uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, and in our own extended family, uh, we've this this is part of our story too. Recently, as um, I, I need to I need to keep that vague right now. But mm-hmm. uh, but it was so helpful for me 
Mm-hmm. And I was able to pass it on to this family member too, parent who just loves their kid and just wants to know how do I how do I navigate this yeah. and how do I navigate other people who are freaking out about it and judging me for being for loving my kid and all that stuff, yep. right? And it just and uh because her commitment is just I just love my kid. Um, we'll figure out the rest of this stuff later. Yeah. And uh but it, it's really helpful to to, it's just very practical and very helpful. So I would certainly recommend it to uh, any family member, whether whether you agree, whether you're affirming or not affirming. It doesn't matter. It just it's really really helpful, and uh, and it's called guiding families. And you can find that at postureshift.com. Yes. Well, I uh, I love what you're doing and mm-hmm. the fact that you would allow your life to be so disrupted by the needs. <clears throat> of a group of people, LGBT youth, who feel rejected, who feel desperate, who don't know, don't feel like they, they don't have a safe place, and you provide that and help homes become that. It's a beautiful thing that you're doing, and thank you for your sacrifice, and, and mm-hmm. thank you for your commitment to it and your willingness to be here and, and have yeah. this critical conversation. Thank you, Jeff. It's a uh... Every night, I, when my kids were growing up, I'd tuck them in bed. And that kind of love that a father has for his children, every time I encounter LGBT people, especially youth, it's like I, I feel that same kind of love for them. And so to be able to do something where you're able to shower vulnerable young people with love, make their life safer at home, um, allow their families to be more free to love them and, and care for them, to make life safe enough to where they can imagine the future rather than be thinking about possibly checking out and taking their life. Uh, it's been uh, one of the greatest privileges of, of my life. Well, as a last word, why don't we do this? Because I'm sure some people listening right now um, may be L- in the LGBT community. They may be LGBT themselves and are... Um, what would you what would you say to a, a teenager who's in the struggle who is not out who has a lot of fear um a lot of insecurity right now don't know they don't know what to do what would you what would you say to that young person yeah it one, one safe adult knowing your story can bring you out of a place of potentially great isolation and then potentially lower any kind of suicidality that you might be feeling. If you're not suicidal and you feel mentally healthy and emotionally healthy and you're okay and you're not ready to come out, then just know there are others you can contact outside your network. You could reach us. You know, you could contact info at postureshift.com and you could reach out and just share your story with us. But having an adult in your life who's within your everyday Mm -hmm. or every week life knowing about you instead of being isolated is really critical. We never out any young person at all, with or without their permission. We Mm -hmm. will not out young people. Um, But we always offer, if you are ready to come out to mom and dad, but it's hard, we'll sit there with you. And, and be a support to you while you come okay. out. Yeah. So in other words, there is opportunity for 
a, possibly a youth pastor to, to know your story, or maybe a teacher at school, um, maybe an uncle or an aunt or an older cousin. Um, in other words, find that safe adult and it would be so important for you to share your story with one person. If you don't have that person, contact us and you can share with us. And then we'll walk with you until you're able to get uh, family and others in your life uh, to be able to know about your story. Well, thank you so much yeah. for what you do, for being here with us. And uh, it's amazing. I'm so, so happy to know you and to know that there, there's a Bill Henson in the world doing what you're doing. is definitely making the world better. And, and you know, a lot of times here at The Good Complex, um, I'll, I'll take some time to debrief and, and have this conversation after, which is, you know, a good thing to do. But honestly, I think this time... Uh, it's just been an amazing conversation, and I think we're ending up where we need to end up, and that is that all of us here, whatever our views of sexuality and marriage, uh, the thing that unites us is we love people, we love families, and, and we love uh, LGBT people. And we can all agree to that, right? And, uh, and so thank you for being part of this conversation today too let's let's keep the conversation going beyond this thank you again bill thank you jeff honored to be here well this is jeff jones for the good complex and i look forward to the next conversation